think I caused some confusion a couple weeks back by saying something about the end, and a couple people were confused. Is this the end of the quarter, the end of the class? And so I was unclear, but with no mistakes at this point, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end of our uh, very good visit to the book of Jeremiah. At least from my perspective, it's been very good. Very glad to have visited this with you all. I would say, truly many other things were written in this book of Jeremiah <laughs> that were not covered in this class. But these have been covered that you might believe that God was making himself known to all the earth and to us. And that believing this, you might know the Lord. Uh, that's what I would say about this. There was a lot more that could have been said about this, a lot more that's been said in the past when other people have taught it. Hopefully we've uh, gained a great deal about who God is and the people he deals with and what they are like, but especially what he is like and all of his dealings with them that inform all of his dealings with us. And so what a beautiful thing that is. The only thing left for us, if we are to be at all complete with seeing the book of Jeremiah, is to look at God's prophecies at the end, where he says that there are day, days are coming for all the boastful nations. He's dealt with his own people, and now he has to deal with all the nations. And... As we've been saying all along, they shall know me. His purpose was to make himself known to all the earth, to his people in a particular way, and especially though he had to exercise his correction and judgment on them, that he had loving kindness uh, that he stored up for them. But for the nations who do not know the Lord, this time... I'm going to make them know. Jeremiah 16, verse 21. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. This time, I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. This will be true for his people, but in what we will see tonight, this will be true for the nations surrounding them. In giving his judgments on these wicked nations, even in this, there is God revealing himself and showing who he is and what he's about and his character. And so he says, if you'll turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9 to introduce this, this actually gives us a good um, overview of what will uh, be seen about God in his judgments on the nations. Okay, so in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 20, uh, 23, beginning, listen to the words. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, 
and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Um, they would, all these nations surrounding Israel will see that they boast in all the wrong things. These things that he says here, they boast in all the wrong things and God will make them ashamed. And furthermore, they know nothing of the ways of the Lord, who he is and what he desires, what he requires. And because they didn't know these things, he's going to show himself to be the one who is righteous and just. And therefore, since he's just, he's angry at them for what they've done. And yet, even in this, even to these foreigners, he's merciful in the end. We won't say much about this, but at the end of most of these prophecies, he will uh, go on to say, um, that there are even blessings and a restoration intended for even these foreign nations. Um, points to blessings of all nations in the Messiah. Um, through the seed of Abraham, in his seed all nations would be blessed. And so God has a message against all these other nations to further help our introduction of these things, and kind of because these things have to be taken very lightly. We had, there's about six or seven chapters here. We can't say a whole lot about it. So what we're going to try to do is do some summarizing of all of these uh, judgments, as we're saying so far, and um, get, get an overview of what these are going to say. So now, uh, quickly turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Again, this, this kind of actually sets up um, these prophecies from chapters 46 and on. In Jeremiah chapter 25, the words of God against the nations uh, occupies, like, like I said, the last six or seven chapters. But this probably, here in chapter 25, is probably the best summary. You may recall that we called Jeremiah the cupbearer to all the nations uh, when, we, when we read through this. And so, in verse 15, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he says to me, Take this cup, Jeremiah, the cup of the wine of wrath from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they shall drink and will stagger and will go mad because of the sword that I'm going to send among them. The sword is going to be one of those uh, common themes against all of these nations. They would see the sword. And Jeremiah, verse 17, Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. And so it begins with Jerusalem in verse 17, as we know, Judgment begins with the household of God, but what's the end for the, for the wicked if the righteous is barely saved, right? And so it begins with Jerusalem, but we've dealt with that. We've seen his judgments on them, and then it would continue. It would continue with Egypt. We introduced Egypt because of Israel or Judah going down to Egypt, and then it would be Philistia, and so also uh, Tyre and Sidon, and then Edom. And Moab, this says here, the sons of Ammon, uh, the uh, princes of Arabia, 
uh, even uh, media as well. And after all of this, it says, after all this, last of all, the king of Babylon. Um, verse 26, all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, shall drink. And after that, the king of Shishak, or Babylon, shall drink. Now listen to the words of verse 27 and 28. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment, all you other nations? I, I, I had to deal with my own people. And do you think you're really going to escape my judgments? Think again. You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, that's the summary. If we don't get through, <laughs> there's your summary of the judgments of the Lord against the nations. A couple other, what I'm calling commonalities in just the way he um, speaks to them, you'll see that he will address them in their strength. And they, they have great pride in, uh, you know, whatever they find to be their particular strength. Some of them in their military might or prowess. Some of them think they're just completely untouchable. And God is going to meet them in their areas of strength, confront that head on, and show them the strength they think they have. It's nothing at all. The other thing you'll see is that um, they are very rooted, of course, in their um, devotion to their idols. And so the only thing they know of any gods is, is these idols. And he will make them come to know the true God when he comes against them face to face. And now they will see him face to face and they will know me. Let's get to now uh, Jeremiah chapter 46 as we uh, kind of try to, try to deal with some of the highlights and the key areas in the destruction against these nations. <clears throat> and it begins with Egypt. No, no surprise there. We'll try to highlight at least where it's spelled out or at least where we can infer. We'll try to highlight God's key contentions with each one of these, each of these nations and then see what God's kind of words against them are, what his response. A lot of times it's, a, it's given as a response to, to them. And uh, you, you would know this about Egypt, that God's key contention with them will be especially this pride in their power. All the earth knew about the power, the military might in Egypt, right? And Egypt um, was very self-aware in this. They know who they are. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then also just God will address their, their false gods and say, I'm, I'm going to make some very uh, potent visits against your headquarters and capitals where 
um, you would be glad to serve your, your gods. One of the, 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 the key thing that you'll see in this especially is that Egypt has taken on, they've, they've given themselves this self-assigned persona. And they describe themselves as the rising Nile. And so the Nile, they, they witness the sheer force of the Nile at flood stage. And they say, I am the Nile. I'm rising up. And, and who stands and who can stand when the Nile is um, rising up? You can't stop this flood. Uh, let, let's, let's read verse 8. Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And he has said, see, this is something they're saying about themselves. I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. This is the might that Egypt thought they had. And you'll see at the very beginning of this chapter, it gives us a historical bookmarker that's very relevant. Because what we find is... This is coming to them and being told to them at the time where they are going to Carchemish. And even world history students, not not just biblical history students, world history students know that this was the defeat of Pharaoh um, uh, when they encountered uh, Babylon um, at, at, at Carchemish. And so God's response to all of this is to acknowledge, oh, sure, You're the Nile, the great power of the Nile that rises up, and who can stand against you? But the turn is that in verse 10, the day belongs to the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance so as to avenge his foes. And rather than the earth being flooded over by the Nile, God is going to meet them with a sword that devours and a great slaughter in the land of the north, by the river Euphrates. And so what God says, if, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, is that you think you pour out like out of your land like the Nile. Well, I'm going to pour out the Euphrates, symbolic of what nation, of course? Babylon. And you'll see that you have no power here. Not because you just uh, misjudged in military might, but because I have appointed Babylon as the great river Euphrates, it's been punishing all the earth, and it's going to punish you as well. And so, yes, it speaks to Pharaoh's defeat at Carchemish, right there on the Euphrates River. Egypt is pictured rolling out to war. And in fact, God calls them out to war. Put on your armor. Get in your chariots. Do you have your horses saddled? Come out to war. The only way I can take you all out is by calling you all out. And that's, uh, that's what he's doing. And he, in verse 15, he'll even mock them. Um, they have all these mighty ones. Well, let's look at verse 14 and 15. Maybe even verse 16. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol. Say, take your stand and get yourself ready. It's, it's the day of battle. For the sword has devoured those around you. Come on out, he says. And yet... As soon as it begins, verse 15, why have your mighty ones fallen prostrate? They've fallen on their faces. What's all this about? It's because the Lord, 
the Lord has thrown them down. Verse 15, at the end, they do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down. They've repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they've fallen against one another. They've said, get up and let us go back to our own people, to our own native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. All that pride, all that confidence in their military might, and just as soon as it starts, let's go home. And so this is the judgment against Pharaoh by the Lord. Okay, you'll have to raise your hand if you have anything to say, because we will. We're addressing nine different nations. We'll keep, keep moving. Yeah, can we get a microphone to Josh, please? Appreciate any comments you'll have on this. So, <clears throat> excuse me. As God says, he's, he's going to make himself known to all the nations. <clears throat> when, I, when I read through this and as I, I listen to you talk about it, I'm reminded that Satan is also working diligently through this whole thing. And it, it's so evident that Today, in 2023, there are approximately 1.5 billion people who claim to know the God of Abraham who are Islamic, who follow a false prophet. And as easy as it is for me, as I read through this and as I listen, to just keep, you know, putting my palm to my forehead going, why? I'm guilty of the same thing in a different way in my everyday life, but it reminds me of how active Satan is in the world, especially today, at all times. But right now, you can go to an Islamic country, and they may have customs and laws that are moral and good, but they're driven by Satan and by false teaching. And that's a scary thing, because it's, it's easy for someone to fall under the sway of, oh, this is, this is what God's Word says. All three, the, the Torah, the, the New Testament, and the, and the Quran, which is a false book, say this. So it just it highlights to me how active Satan is in the whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so even among those who would claim to know a God, a twisted, perverted a uh, satanic version of that is, is no God at all. They do not know me. So that's, uh, so that's Egypt. Uh, in chapter 47, we find Philistia. Not as much about this. Uh, as a quick summary, this sword, we've said, is sent against them as well. Um, but at the end of this, it will not be sheathed. And it will not be silent. There's not much given in terms of identifying what it is that the Lord has against this nation. But we know from history, certainly the oppression of God's people throughout, many things like this. Um, the, again, idolatry is the common thing, even though it's not explicitly addressed here. And so God would visit them. And... Um, and a, an ironic, a powerful, a sarcastic um, word is to them in verses 6 and 7. This is, it's going to be so bad among them that they'll say, can, can we put the sword away? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long will you not be quiet? 
Isn't it time? Isn't it time? Withdraw into your sheath. Be at rest and stay still. But it can't be, can it? Why not? Verse 7, how can it be quiet when the Lord has given it an order against Ashkelon and against the seacoast? There he has assigned it. So the sword is coming, won't be sheathed, and it won't be silent until it has accomplished its purpose. Now on to Moab. A little bit more here in chapter 48 in terms of God's contentions with them. There was their... uh, detestable idol, Chemosh, and because of their service to him on, on several occasions, in fact, it's uh, verse 7 you could see, for because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures, even you yourself will be captured, and Chemosh will go off, this is your God, together with you into exile. What kind of God goes into captivity? A God that's not any God at all. It's, God makes it very plain that these idols have no power, these military uh, forces have no power. And he, he makes this very plain. And so in verse, verse 7 also, this, this trust in their treasures. Um, so they are satisfied. They have all that they um, need. And this is surely a protection for them. Well, not uh, when the Lord will visit them. God is jealous for his own people. And so in, with several of these nations, you'll see that they were a participant um, with the mistreatment of Israel in various ways and at various times throughout history. And God confronts this as well in verse 27. um, I turned before I'm off the page. Now, was Israel a laughingstock to you, or was he caught among thieves? For each time you speak about him, you shake your head in scorn. So they've mocked Israel, probably relating to the time of their um, overthrow and instead of being humble, instead of rather mourning instead, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, they've uh, become, they've exalted themselves and look at them and, um, yeah, so you'll, you'll see the mockery of Israel. And then absolutely addresses their pride. Moab is very proud. And now verse 29, we have heard of the pride everybody knows. Everybody knows. We have heard of the pride of, the Uni- of Moab. <laughs> he is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his exaltation, all of these things. And so he's going to be destroyed not just because of pride, because he is arrogant against the Lord. So look at verse um, 42, and Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. And so, even in their disposition to the Lord, very prideful. And we're given a a symbolic picture in this, describing um, and not flattering uh, Moab in this. It's the symbolic picture of what I'll call worthless wine. It's a very old vintage, and normally you would think that this would be very desirable, um, but not in this case, because if you start with something that's rotten, and it's always been, and it's been rotten all along, then what you get at the end, after a very long time, is something rotten and worthless and putrid, all of these things. And so this is what you'll read 
in verse, now I'm lost, in verse 11, um, Moab has been at ease from its youth. And so God hasn't really dealt with Moab all along. They've kind of been allowed to live, and God is patient, even with evildoers to the third and fourth generations, but eventually he visits that judgment on them, right? Moab has been at ease since its youth. He has been undisturbed on his lees. And now the picture of these kind of maybe, I don't even know what you'd call a person who makes wine. What, what do you call that person? I don't know. What is it? A vintner. a vintner. Thank you, Mitch. So the vintner has never visited these casks um, and has never visited Moab. Neither has he, Moab, emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he rota- retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. Is this desirable? Absolutely not. Therefore, behold, and, and see how God uses that picture and, and, and then shows that it's going to be the picture of destruction on them. Therefore, verse 12, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him those who do tip vessels, the vintner, and they will tip him over, and they will empty his vessels and shatter his jars. And then Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh. This is their idol, their confidence. And so, um, yeah, I think I put it up here wine that you would normally think that it would have these qualities. It would normally be very good, a very old vintage, uh, undisturbed, circa 1921. But since it had been untipped and it had retained its putrid aroma, then um, God would visit them and this would be poured out and it would be shown to be the worthless wine that they are. Okay, anything else about that before we go on to Ammon? Keep turning. In chapter 49, a short section there, six, what we would call six verses, against Ammon, and the key contention there is with this, their god Milcom, or we would more often uh, see this given as Molech, different variations on that spelling. Molech in uh, Kings was identified as the detestable idol of the um, sons of Ammon. Um, and so this, this God where the sacrifice involved burning children in the fire, God has to visit this. This cannot go. He will by no means leave these guilty ones unpunished, right? And he'll also address in verse 1 these opportunistic exploits of the land of Israel. And so he, is, he has seen the injustice of his people. And so the ones who perpetrated that are going to see his judgment. God is protective and jealous of his land. And so concerning Verse 1, the sons of Ammon, thus says the Lord, does Israel have no sons or does he have no heirs? Why then has Milcom, uh, personifying Ammon, taken possession of Gad? This is not their land. Well, it is, it, if they think they can get away with it, they're going to move in while God has removed the children of Israel. This will not stand. Why has his people settled in their cities? Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. I'm going to cause a trumpet blast of war to be heard 
and your towns are going to become des des desolate. And then in some way, he says that Israel will take possession of its possessors. And then as, as with all these others, it's the pride. It's the boastful pride in verse 4. How boastful you are about your valleys. But your valley is flowing away. Um, you trust in your treasures. You say, who is coming against me? Well, terror is coming against you, declares the Lord from all directions. And then Edom as well. The picture God gives here is that, you know, if you go into a, a vineyard, the ones who gather grapes, even they leave something. But here, it's going to be like grape gatherers that don't leave any gleanings whatsoever. That's how badly desolate and picked over and completely brought down you will be. In this, for, for Edom, the key contention God has with them is... Um, is in that they viewed themselves to be the uh, center of wisdom, of counsel, of knowledge. We know one of Job's friends of this land and of this area. Um, and I'm recalling what we read before in Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom... God will have to address this. Let not the mighty man, that was Egypt, boast in his might. Let not the rich man, that's uh, Ammon and these others. Boast in, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Boast in the Lord. You don't know the Lord. So here we will meet the Lord. And so God's response to this wisdom, they have wise counsel. They have a way out of anything, God's response in verse 20 is that my wise plan, my wise counsel, and my purpose is against you. You think you have counsel and wisdom. It can't save you, and it won't. So you see, he meets them in their area of strength. You want to take counsel about war? Um, you'll see me in, in war. Um, Verse 20, therefore hear the plan of the Lord which he has planned against Edom and his purposes which he has purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones with the flock. How, how did you get your little ones involved in this? Your wise counsel was to put the little ones? He will make their pasture desolate because of them and the earth has quaked at the noise of their downfall. So... Um, their great wisdom that they trusted in did them no good. <clears throat> Damascus, only a few uh, verses here up toward Assyria, to Syria and Assyria. Um, he points out that there's only bad news for them. We have heard bad news. They are disheartened. There's anxiety by the sea, and it cannot be calmed. And if I'm reading this right... I think there was some kind of boastful pride in them. Uh, there's a little bit of trouble with the translations about understanding if this city of praise maybe refers to... I say there's trouble in translations. They give it different ways, and so I'm having trouble discerning. <laughs> if it's talking about if they viewed themselves as the, this um, grand city, or if it's possibly that God um, was upset about their treatment of his people... Some, one way or the other, um, God ends up using the picture. Well, he addresses them this way. He says, you live near the sea. 
And so you know how rough and violent the seas can be. Well, think about that kind of violence in your own streets, and that's what um, I'm bringing on you. And you might think that the calm after the storm <laughs> sounds agreeable, but the only reason there's calm after the storm is because everybody's gone and dead, and your warriors are, are, have, have lain down dead, permanent sleep, um, and that is the only time that there will be calm in your city. And then Kedar and Hazor, which uh, essentially would be um, Arabian princes and nations, uh, as we come down to verse 28 and following, and God's message to them is terror on every side. And it seems to be the case that his key contention with them is that they live at ease in their tents, and they're very comfortable and very, um, well, they have this self-assured security. When he addresses this, God says, you live, in, uh, you live in tents, not in a city. Now, if you attack a city, you have to go through the gates. That's, that's the main area of attack. But you don't have any gates. You don't have any walls. And so there's terror on every side. I'm sending it from every side. And I don't know how you can think you have any security at all. Foolish, foolish. All right, I'm going faster because there's some things I really, really want to get to at the very end. <clears throat> For Elam... Uh, the message to them is it that I'm going to break your bow. We're kind of left, again, to interpolate sometimes in some of these things. Not, I don't have a very strong knowledge of the history and the customs and the, all of these things of these nations. But evidently, they felt like their strength was, especially in their um, strong archers and you might call it air superiority, and as an address to this, God will say, well, I command the winds. As soon as you loose your arrows, this, maybe it's a, a, a cloud of them, but I command the wind. And what's going to happen with your well-tuned arrows when I send the four winds from every direction? What, what good will your arrows do then? And so he says in verse 36, I'm going to scatter them. That's what the wind will do. I'm going to shatter them. I don't know what he has in mind there. And then he says in verse 37, and I'm sending a sword. And what's stronger? You, do, you choose. What would you rather have? A sword or broken arrows when it's come in time to face-to-face -face combat? And it's, it's very plain. And so God's sword will meet them. Okay, now Babylon, the very last of all. After all of the others have drunk of the wine of the wrath of the Lord... Then Babylon 2. And this is absolutely not doing justice to everything God has to say here about visiting Babylon. But the summary of this is that he's visiting them because of everything that they had done to all of the nations surrounding them. And it's with, an, with a special emphasis on his own uh, people and what they had done to them according to... All that she has done to others, so do to her. And so she will be repaid. And so those are the key contentions. Certainly the idolatry that's addressed on a couple of occasions. But then everything that she had done to others. And it looks like this. In verse 10 and 11, they, they had plundered. And so they would be for plunder. They had drawn up battle lines in verse 14. Everybody knew that they came against your city. This is for the long haul. They're not going to withdraw. And God says, I'm going to do the same thing to you. I'm bringing all the nations against you. 
And there's no withdrawal. Um, he said, this is in verse 23, you are the hammer that I used against the whole earth, but your hammer is worn out and broken now. And I'm opening, he says in verse 25, I love this. You are the, um, I'm see if I can get there. You're the hammer, verse 23, of the whole earth, but it's cut off and broken. And so you have a hammer without a handle. I mean, you got, maybe you can throw it at one time and then it's useless now, right? Verse 25, the Lord has opened his entire armory and he's brought forth the weapons of his indignation for it is the work of the Lord of hosts. And so he's meeting this hammer with an entire armory. You see it? Um, the, they had scattered other nations, verse 17 and verse 45. God's going to scatter you and drag you off. He, they had brought turmoil on the whole earth and now the whole earth is going to have rest, and they will have turmoil. Verse 34, God will vigorously plead their case, this is of his people, so that, they, that he may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. If they were cruel and merciless, they would see the same. So every bit of this. Uh, if they were, you were my war club that I used to shatter the nations, chapter 51, verse 20 will say, and now I'm going to shatter and destroy you. Three times he says, I will repay. And so God is the God of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And, and they see him in that. One of the interesting uh, things that's going on here is that it's very direct that God is saying the reason... I am uh, addressing you in judgment. At least one key reason is to make a statement of deliverance for what I'm doing for my people. And it works out like this. Essentially, it's, it's his, God's direct response to the oppression and the mistreatment of his people. And he's making the whole earth know that he defends his people. And so these statements, I'm going to read them from here. Uh, this is of Israel. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name, so he's vigorously going to plead their case. They've been oppressed by Babylon and these nations. And so you need to know that God has not forsaken his people, and so therefore I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea, all of them, for their evil that they have done to Zion. And so it's a great statement of deliverance. Okay, five minutes. <laughs> we need to take ourselves out and see the end. The end of this is much different. Now we're, we're in chapter 52. At the very end, we, we read this. We met this one time. And I, I asked you, if, if you have it in you, to go out and kind of consider what's, being, what's going on here. In this account where Jehoiakim, the rotten son of Josiah, barely a king at all, carried off into captivity... And in this remarkable account, in the very last words of Jeremiah, this remarkable account of sunlight and hope um, and, and goodness and kindness and mercy, um, absolutely amazing. And so I'm pushing the wrong button here. Um, we're getting a picture. I'm okay. I'm not revealing that just yet. Can we blank that screen? Possibly. No. That's all right. Doesn't need to. Um, <clears throat> what about it? Let's 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 read uh, Jeremiah 52. This is verse 31 to the end. It came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He's been in prison. Get this. Don't miss this. 37 years. In the 12th month, on the 25th of the month. 
Um, this, is, this is a very long imprisonment. This is a, basically a hopeless, this is a life sentence. Life sentence, right? You agree? Okay. At that time, Evil Merodach, man who has the name of his, one of his gods in his name, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. What is going on here? What is going on here? In verse 32, he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So, Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. What comments would you like to make about that before we go on and see this picture that I think is a picture of something else? You get first crack at it. I know, there's a lot, lot to say, a lot to do here. So, um, so I, get, I get to go. A picture of mercy and restoration. What I see in all of these words are just magnificent words that speak to God's deliverances throughout the ages, but especially of his showing mercy to ones who were imprisoned with a life sentence because of slavery to sin, right? This is a picture of that. You won't convince me otherwise. <clears throat> And so God was working through this man, and in, in a bizarre sort of way, this pagan king of um, Babylon becomes a picture of God and personifies God, or becomes a shadow, let's say, of, of what God does for his people. Amazing. In verse 31 again, evil Merodach brought Jehoiakim out of prison and showed favor to him. I think of Psalm 136. We're just, I'm having to read this from here without turning. He remembered us in our lowest state, bringing us out of prison, right? For his loving kindness, and don't miss these statements. This should be very familiar. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136 is that psalm that after every phrase, it's a call and response. And we would get tired of singing this one, but it's a good song. We, we don't have a taste for a song like this. But after every statement, it's just too repetitive. No, for his loving kindness is everlasting. If we're really impressed by that, we could sing this song. And so for the whole psalm is this way. He remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness is everlasting. He's rescued us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness is everlasting. In verse 32, he spoke kindly to him. And set his throne above the seats of the kings. Boy, don't miss this one. Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. God raised us up with him. That's Christ. Christ the king. Don't miss that. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show what? The surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus spoke kindly, set us, set our thrones right there with the other kings. It's a parallel of what God did for us in Christ. 
at any point make your comments. Otherwise, verse 33, Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes. We could have something to say about that, probably some parallels in the New Testament. But for this, the second part of that, he had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. Luke chapter 13 is a prophecy, it's against Israel, saying you've rejected and you've turned away from the kingdom. But there are people coming, and this is you and me, Gentiles, outsiders. The beautiful thing is, we're called out of prison, outsiders, somebody who is not a citizen of this land. But we're called into this. And in Luke 13, verse 29, says they're going to come from east and west. That's us again. And from north and south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And by the way, that was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we have this as we're part of these uh, kingdom citizens, we're at the table. And it's as if we're there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews missed out, except for the ones that turned all the days of our life. We're at the table. And then you can't, well, where are we here? Yeah, you can't miss the the great parallels with Psalm 23. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup runs over. And then uh, with this, he had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. In Psalm 23, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A great message of hope for all people of the New Testament who will turn to the Lord. This is God. Anyway, thank you for uh, your kind attention, everything so far and in this quarter. Appreciate it so much.